Happy Mardi Gras, y'all. Uh, once again, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, takes to the ether here from the Porpoise of Fruititude, located next to the Fortress of Proopitude here in Lower California. We're recording this on Fat Tuesday. Uh, here's Jennifer. Hi. Uh, tell me a little bit about the lyrics to this one. This is the Dixie Cups doing a, a traditional... I don't think anyone agrees on the lyrics of this. Well, they're stealing flags and they're talking about kings and stuff, but it's all about the Mardi Gras parade. It's not about real kings and real flags and whatnot. I mean, they are real flags, flags and real kings, right. but they're they, Mardi Gras they, flags. They, right, they have different tribes that... Uh, well, there's one that, that I really uh, adore called the Northside Skull and Bone Gang, and they've been around for 200 years now. And they, they start, how far does it go back? Well, I think that the first there's, of course, there's dispute on when, where, what, but uh, some people put it in the 1660s in Mobile, Alabama. Really, Mobile. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, Mobile, I think, is is considered the first Mardi Gras uh, tradition in America, but obviously New Orleans took to it with a vengeance. Yeah. When did they start doing it? Early 1800s? I think so, yeah. yeah. And and then, uh, horribly, uh, it was segregated. So right. groups like um, the, the Northside Skull and Bone Gang, um, I found an article about them from the New Orleans Advocate, and this article is by Katie uh, Rechtal. And she said that uh, 20, 20 years ago, Bruce Sunpie Barnes reluctantly became a skeleton. Sunpie? Yeah, Sunpie. He was coaxed into it by... Al- just describe a little bit about what a, a skeleton is, because I'm looking at the picture, but I think for people who are listening, it's pretty crazy. Well, there are a, a couple of them are on stilts. They wear large paper mache skull uh, heads, and they are the first to greet people on the day. It's before sunrise, and so you're supposed to be... I guess, delighted that a group of uh, skeletons come to your house to wake you up uh, on Mardi Gras Day. I assume that people are well advised. and uh, In advance, yeah. so you're not caught unawares. <laughs> well, they're wearing um, black outfits with bones painted on them, and they yes. have, like, top hats on. So they yes. look like total cartoon skeletons, but their faces are super scary. Yes, yeah. It, it, it's, uh, well, it, it looks like a, a Haitian... Yeah, uh, looks Baron, Baron Samdi kind of super voodoo. So yeah. tell me about your guy here who yeah. joined the skeleton crew. Well, because I, I liked his story. He was coaxed into it by Albert Morris. Um, Al rode up on me on his bicycle and asked if I'd ever thought of masking skeleton. I told him no, indeed. <laughs> Barnes is fifty-five now. Uh, he thought about masking as a Mardi Gras Indian because he was close friends with big, the big chief of the Guardians of the Flame Tribe. By the late 1990s, however, the skeleton tradition had nearly died out. It wasn't even on Barnes' radar. Soon it would become a chief passion for him. And he will mark, today he marks his uh, 20th oh my year. Goodness. And it's the gang's 200th year oh of God. doing this. So, 1819. Um. Yeah. He he wears a big paper mache skull and hits the street as the second chief to the uh to Morris, the last remaining member of the Northside 
Skull and Bone Gang. Uh, they started in uh, 1819. The story goes that the merchant marine brought the tradition into the city and that he started masking what we now call Treme. Uh, By masking, you mean put throwing a ball? Well, I no, I think they mean donning the gear, oh, you know? Not like, masking with a SK, SQU? No, no, like putting on your, your uh-huh. outfit for the day. Um it happened when it started when there were there was a huge influx of people from Haiti and Cuba. Ah, so, so again, Caribbean yeah. culture in America. Yeah, um, each what I love this is so New Orleans. Each tribe member has his own theory. Right now, why are they Indians? <laughs> is that just because the Indians lived there before them and helped build the city? That's kind of a, a mystery, right? Because they wear these weird, wild, feathered costumes, and they're called chiefs and their mm-hmm. tribes and mm-hmm. all that jazz. Um, he says, um, I believe the images tra- traveled out of the Caribbean to the port city of New Orleans. Um, he recently went to Africa, and he said he, he had a greater sense of the traditions, African roots. Mm. Um, what's clear is that for generations, skeletons and Indians both roamed the streets of African-American communities on Mardi Gras Day, part of community masking customs that centered more on neighborhoods than on the grand pageantry of Canal Street where black citizens weren't welcome. Ah, um, so Canal was segregated in them days. Well, the the, uh, the Mardi Gras floats. Were white. Yeah. And I, in fact, remember the, the Jewish people of the city left town because they weren't invited either. They were Right, they were excluded but by the But they had the, the money to leave. Right, the, the Gentiles excluded the Jews from it. It's it's a sweet... Yeah, but now everybody does it, and it's kind of more mixed, I think, a little. Jazz historian John Musker has found references to skeletons uh, dating back to 1875. A Times-Picayune article that year re- referred to a Mardi Gras fight involving skeletons. Wow. Which, that must have been something to see. Yeah. Um. When Morris learned the tradition from his own big chief, Big Arthur, he was taught to pass it big along. Big Arthur? Mm-hmm. I f- feel a certain peace knowing that the north side will live on, he said. Um, by the way, the song that you heard before underneath Jennifer was Bo Dallas and the Wild Magnolia Mardi Gras Indian Band doing Honda Wanda. And this is Eddie Bo doing I Know You Mardi oh, Gras. Oh, I love Eddie Bo. He passed a few years ago. Yes. Eddie Bocage. Right, his name was Bocage, and he mm-hmm. went by. So, is there another city in the United States that has that kind of. Um, what does um, uh, uh, John Kennedy Tool say at the beginning? He does this quote at the beginning of Confederacy of Dentists about, which someone gave me this year, and thank you for all your lovely gifts, um, how New Orleans is more like Tangier than mm-hmm. anywhere mm-hmm. else. Because we're talking about people from. In American Indians, of which their influence in the cooking is felt heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and the music. And the music. Uh, black people, uh, Spanish people, French people, mm-hmm. people from the Caribbean. Italians. Um, it, Italians, Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, the story of New Orleans music seems to be uh, black people taking Italian band instruments and turning it into jazz, right, as opera. well as Italians at the same time. Doing jazz too, mm-hmm. um, right? Opera was always popular, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, and inextricably linked with the food. It's all a, a celebration. So olives, uh, uh, peppers, uh, rice, uh, uh, beans—that um, uh, really strange way of adding butter to every single thing <laughs> that could possibly <laughs> shrimps and. Uh, uh, 
Yeah. The not a grits place. Delectable not a grits shrimp. Place. No. And, well, but, really? Oh, well, a grits place. You can get shrimp and grits always, but. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, gumbo. Gumbo. And, and always, but always Italian bread. On, on everything. All the sandwiches yes. are on Italian bread. Yes. And the, the muffaletta supposedly was because there was a strike and uh, an Italian baker came up with a sandwich to keep the, the strikers fed. Right. And the, they could cart the sandwich to work. And a muffaletta is uh, uh, olive spread, is it? Mm-hmm. And um, copa, uh, salami. Uh, uh, is there onions? Lettuce, definitely. Provolone. Provolone. Uh, we used to go to um, the... Napoleon the house. Napoleon House on Charters and had mufflettes, but I, they're supposed to not be the best ones. I think there's a market <laughs> in New Orleans that's got the. This well, well it, it, it's so uh, typical. You go through a, a, a market, and in the back there's a door, and then you know you ask for the sandwich there. Mufflettes are unbelievably delicious. They combine everything that is uh, 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 one of those Jersey subs has with a, a way more sexy uh, feel. They're flatter. Um, they're easier to eat. Great bread. And the bread is really good. And with a, a, like a cold beer well, or that's a, the a thing. sweet tea. People there care about their it's music about and they care about their food. Music and, and food. they care about uh, what they're going to wear on Mardi Gras. No wonder you like it so much. This is Clifton <laughs> Chenier doing Josephine Passe Femme. And I was just looking at Clifton Chenier's accordion. Uh, there's an exhibit at the San Francisco airport of all places. And I've been on the road <laughs> right? a lot. And they've got all these great folk instruments in the exhibit. And I sent Jennifer a picture back of well, I Clifton Engineers. Yeah, you saw it when you were there. Yeah, um, homemade. Oh my God! Just right? and the washboard, the washboard, it's just amazing. Well, I mean, how how is one place? How did one place have uh, Mahalia Jackson, Louis Armstrong? Today we were reading about how Alan Toussaint met Dave Bartholomew when he was seventeen. And Dave Bartholomew is still inv- alive. invented uh, uh, Thoughts Domino along with Thoughts Domino. Thoughts Domino was an artist playing in New Orleans and, and another band. And he joined Dave Bartholomew's band. And Dave Bartholomew saw that he was a genius and also that he was a great songwriter. And they started writing songs together. And Dave Bartholomew produced all of those great Thoughts Domino records. And he also produced um, Little Richard as well. But um, Dave Bartholomew is still alive. And he play- he's a horn player. Um... And uh, the cat who passed away a couple years ago, Cosmo, Italian, who mm-hmm. engineered all the records at this one tiny little studio that yes. maybe 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 records were made at. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alan Toussaint started there as well. Right. In, in that band, uh, in that studio. Um, no, it's it's ridiculous. And, and kind of, just a, a, an amazing amount of uh, fabulous uh, pianists. Professor Longhair, Fats Domino, Blake, Alan Fats Domino, Fats Domino, um, and Fats could play that uh, that funky music as good as anyone. In case you think we're leaving out, uh, James Booker, uh, White People Cajuns. Here's a little Doug Kershaw and <laughs> <laughs> his howl, always off key and always fantastic. And sung in, sung in Creole in that patois. <laughs> so mournful. Well, and I'm not forgetting Big Frida. Oh, Big Frida. Well, Big Frida is like the logical extension of all that. 
Well, we're not there in New Orleans, but as you can see, we're trying to live it up <laughs> like it's New Orleans time here. Uh, they, had a, they had a, a Robert Mueller float. Uh, and they also had the, um, what was the other one? The um... I was looking it up today, and, and their Mardi Gras floats, or uh, parades, I mean, start in January. Wow. I mean, they've got so many going. They just don't have time. No, they don't have enough time. Uh, and, the, and there's not enough time in the day. Also, I can't think of another city. And it's not a big city. It's a population smaller than San Francisco. I'm guessing 400,000, maybe 500,000. That has this many 24-hour markets and places <laughs> to drink. Um, there's a guide to 24-hour markets in New Orleans. And it's page after page. And you're like, who's up? Everybody. Um, everyone's up. Demeters. Whoa. What button did I hit there? Uh, yeah. If you've never been and you never get a chance to go. Listen to the music and play and, and make the food. Exactly. And it's also not like no like nowhere else in the South. Um, no. Uh, having this year been to Florida, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, um, and heading back out to Tennessee in two weeks' time to play uh, Nashville and Chattanooga and Virginia... We've been to. Um, they're all fun places with great food and good music, but oh my goodness, New Orleans is a whole other mm-hmm. level of living. They got La Dolce Vita, or as they would say, the Bon Temps Brule. <laughs> uh, they're not afraid to mix it up every night I, and drink while they drive, which is pretty uh, yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's, a, it's scary too. Oh, it's scary. I remember last time we were there. Uh, in the afternoon, watching this enormous African American man walk by, really stroll by, in a giant pink feathered cape, yeah. and just thinking, you know, it's New Orleans, so I'm guessing he's just on errands. Right, he might not have even given it that much. Right, I'm just going to put on my pink. This is my pink cape. cape. Yeah. There was also a group of um, black guys on giant purple motorcycles, if you recall, yeah. driving through town. Yeah. Um. And everybody with the beads all the time. It's still an extraordinary place, and it hasn't lost all its magic. And don't let anyone tell you that it's not as good as it was. It probably isn't. But um, who was the poet who said, no one's been to Paris till you've been to Paris? It was the artist Dwayne Michaels. Well, no when one's I been s- to New Orleans till you've been to New Orleans. Right? No one's been to New Brooklyn till you've been to Brooklyn. Um, there's still magic left in San Francisco, I can assure you. There's still magic left in Hawaii and everywhere you go. If, no matter how corporate and overdone and overdeveloped and all that jazz, there is still authentic things going on in all these places. Yeah, always make a point of, of finding those those old places, too, that might not be there the next time you go. Don't go to Subway Sandwich and Starbucks. <laughs> no. Get off the road and, and go to the, the grocery store and talk to people. That people will tell you what's good, I think. Well, that's the other fun thing there is that anyone will strike up a conversation. Oh, no. we, we got in a taxi, oh, and no, I consider okay. it one of the great triumphs of my life. <laughs> oh, no. That the cab driver was a young African-American man, and he was listening to Michael McDonald's greatest hits. And um, <laughs> I was like, it, we get in, and it's like, shine, sweet freedom, shine your light on me. And I'm like, is this the greatest hits collection? He's like, yeah, I love it. And sadly, that was a long ride. <laughs> Jennifer was disappointed. <laughs> but remember, <laughs> he was going to be playing Kermit Ruffin the whole way or something. He gave us a long uh, 
dissertation on uh, the rent increase, you know, the gentrification of the neighborhoods. That you know, talk to people when you're in a cab or a car or an Uber or a yeah, Lyft. Yeah, don't just sit on your phone. By the way, the people who drive the Ubers and the Lyfts and the cabs are pretty knowledgeable. Um, I think you'll find that hardly anyone knows more about what's going on than them because um, they read papers all day, they look at their phone all day, and they talk to everyone all day, and they talk to the other drivers mm-hmm. all day. So they kind of know what's happening. Um, I don't think you ever go wrong asking. We've been to many towns where the first thing we've done is ask a cab driver where we should go to eat, including Bermuda when we went oh there. Oh, my God. And that guy gave us a really great suggestion. We went to Beyond the Triangle and had um, fish cooked in banana leaves. And it was it was really inexpensive. Oh, my God. He said all the cabbies eat there. And it was it was lovely. I had fried fish with chips. And Jennifer had um, a local fish that I can't remember the name of. And if I can, I'll die a happy person. And it was cooked in, a, in leaves and served with a kind rice of a rice and, and bean thing. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the better meals we had. Later oh. in the week, we went to a famous chef's restaurant whose name shall go unmentioned, Marcus Samuelson. <laughs> and it was a really fancy place that had war halls and a staggering um, location on a dock, a beautiful, beautiful um, rich people dock of English rich white people dock. And because um, Bermuda has, uh, there's lots of black people in Bermuda and there's lots of British rich people that kind of have cribs there and stuff. And then there's some people that live, what's well, the population? 50, somebody 000? has to be there to launder the money. Right. Oh, it's the biggest, it's just, just a total sky. Uh, beautiful island. Anyway, uh, you may remember that um, episode of the podcast because we recorded it in our hotel room with uh, our good friend Alonzo Bowden, who right now is on a jazz cruise in the Caribbean. And we could... I know. How does he do it? He's in Cozumel. Because he's he plans his year right. <laughs> he's also had the jazz cruise gig for so long that you're going to have to pry it from his what, cold, a, dead saxophone-holding cool, fingers. What a cool gig. And he knows his jazz. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Alonzo... Not, he, first of all, he knows jazz really well, as you recall in that episode. But he also knows all those cats. So he knows Marcus Miller. And he knows uh, 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 David. You know, uh, he says they just spend the whole time riffing on the boat. He's welcome because he's the comedian. And he hosts all the shows. It's such a great gig. Anyways, we went to um, Marcus Samuelson's. And we had some local fish there. And they gave us cornbread and greens. And uh, if we've talked about this the, before. Yeah, probably. It, it was the disappointment platter. The greens were the worst greens I've ever had. As I've just stated on the show, my mother's from Casilla, Mississippi, and her greens would have a ham hock in them that you, when you would bite into it, there was a lot of fat, and it would make you cry because you'd feel joy. Um, <laughs> Marcus Samuelson's were so sugar-fried. They had way too much brown sugar in them. They were almost inedible. They were too sweet. He, he was trying to reinvent something that, no, don't. How was my mother able to make greens that I'm sure her your mother mom, had made? Your mom was a good cook. She was, but she was proper Mississippi cook. Like she made that kind of food that farmers made. And cornbread was a specialty like you you and greens and baka peas whatnot. To have his cornbread and it was awful. It hadn't finished yet. It wasn't light. It was heavy. And they were trying to do a foo-foo thing with it. And then the greens were crappy. And I'm like, if you can't make greens, man. Mm-mm. Like I'm going to Tennessee. And in Tennessee they got, um, what do they call meat and two? Colored greens take uh, time. You have to cook it all night. Yeah. With ham in it. With fat in it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to Tennessee and they have meat and two in Nashville and chat, right? So you go to these little cafeterias and it's macaroni and cheese, whatnot, beans, uh, pulled pork. The meat is pork or brisket, whatnot. And then two sides. And I always get. Heart healthy. No. uh, (laughs) Everyone looks like me. 
And uh, I always get greens and because oh, it's my yeah. favorite side. Yeah. And cornbread. I, you can have, you know, green beans are nice. They're lovely. Uh, I like baked beans too, but if I can get greens, I'm going to get greens. And um, in fact, thinking about it makes me want to go to a place in Nashville what that I know. The, what was the name of the gospel singer in uh, San Francisco that had a, a barbecue place? His name was um, uh, Clifton. No, his name no. was... Lionel, no, no. <laughs> Did it begin with an E? I can't. Why his name was it? Emmett Powell. Emmett Powell, and his yes. group was called the Mighty Clouds of Joy, or that's a different group. I'm conflating his. Emmett with Powell had had this barbecue place on Hayes, and it was really intimidating, and it had really good food. And the only time we've ever been to Venice, Italy, they were performing there. Yes, Emmett Powell, which was interesting. And was it his gospel elite? Yes, yes. Uh, and I heard they had good sides, but you had best not dally. Yes, they were the gospel elites. If in your ordering, you had to be prepared. Yeah, you, you didn't, you didn't dally, and I transgressed so hard once. I was there, and I couldn't get anyone's attention. I was by myself, and I, we always got um, the fried chicken, which was to die for. They had the goodest down home fried chicken. It was on Hay Street when Hay Street was in gentrified. There was now it's not even there anymore. But yeah, I went in and I was sitting. I, I ate in the place. No, now Hay Street is where the owner of the giant. Really, we're getting into that. Sorry, sorry. That's all right. I'll do it. No, no. I'm going to finish my crap story. Yes, please. I went behind the counter. I reached behind the counter to get a to get a fork. Wow. And the dude came back out um, from behind the counter and he went, what are you doing back here? And I went, I needed some silver and you weren't here. And he went, don't you come behind the counter? And I said, I'm sorry, but I didn't, I needed a fork to eat the chicken with. And I, you weren't back here. And I tried to get your attention and you didn't hear me. And he's like, don't ever come behind the, he wasn't having it at all. Right. Because he caught me behind the counter at his restaurant where he was holding it down. And, but sometimes we would, because we lived, uh, not that far, I didn't live that far away. We would buy the chicken there and bring it home and eat it because it was so good. We get breasts and uh, legs and whatnot. And he did cornbread. Right. And it was always an adventure because that neighborhood still, I mean, you take your life in your hands just a few blocks well, away. In those days, there was a lot more. It was scary. Sex workers and uh, uh, crack dealers well, and stuff. Yeah. It was uh, run down. And uh, now it's still run down. But. Uh, what gives it, and my hope there is, there's so all the beautiful houses in that neighborhood. They've kept their flavor and um, thank God down they the bottom of the Western Edition. Turn them down. Well, if you remember, our friend Jeff lived in an apartment building not far from there on Golden Gate, and um, I believe a person was found deed in the laundry room there. That was years ago. Yeah, and the neighborhood's hectic. Yeah. Um, L- Larry Bear, uh, who's the um, CEO of the San Francisco Giants baseball club. Um, was in an altercation with his wife and was openly abusive to her, and that was on TMZ, and I'm sure you all saw it. And I might as well jump in and address it right now. Of course I think he should resign. He's not going to. They've put him on leave, and he's sorting the situation out, and the Giants have been very official and corporate about it. And um, so is Larry Bear and his wife. They've both said, oh, you know, it was just a situation, and we're dealing with it, and, oh, her foot was hurt, and she, she fell. Said, and She said that she fell, and obviously it, you can see that he pushed her. Um, I'm not a big Larry Bear fan, but I'm not letting that color my just general perception of the whole thing. Um, I feel like in sports, there has to be a line drawn, and it hasn't been. Um, The owners, of course, exempt themselves from everything, except for, of course, Robert Kraft, uh, who we haven't even, uh, in his machinations. Um, 
they get to take drugs. They get to consort with uh, uh, low-life criminal types. They get to do illegal things. They get to demand ransoms from cities and stuff. Uh, the players aren't allowed to express their First Amendment right uh, to, you know... Right, they also get to be racist. Right, they get to be wildly racist. and But the players often have issues uh, with domestic abuse. And, you know, that goes on and on. The Cubs have a famous pitcher, Chapman. He shouldn't have been allowed to play anymore. He should have been suspended. Uh, Larry Bear should voluntarily resign. I, I honestly believe that. Much as I believe the governor, lieutenant governor, and AG of North Virginia, of Virginia, Northern Virginia. I, I just split it into two states, you guys. It's 1874 of Northern Virginia. Uh, I believe they should have resigned to show good faith that they weren't, that their horrible actions, their, their, the lieutenant governor of Fairfax's uh, abuse allegations that um, Northam's absolute Let's not say it was an allegation. We saw the pictures. I mean, it's hard to get around that one. That racist and abuse nonsense has to be answered for. Men have to answer for their transgressions. Mm -hmm. Starting... At the very least, have an investigation of yourself. Starting in the Oval Office. Right. But investigate yourself. Yes, yes. Have a commission come in from outside and, and, you know, do something. Uh, Yeah, the Oval Office. Don't even... Sorry, I'm standing up. Right. That's why I'm so far away from the mic. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm loud. <laughs> Go on. The uh, Keeping to the Bay Area, I guess, uh, the Oakland teachers' strike uh, is over. And all they were asking for was they got an 11% pay raise. They were, I think, the most underfunded uh school district in the country um, and they get a one-time 3% bonus. We've had the drug delivery on the um, my eye drops. Uh, yes, we're privileged. Our pharmacy delivers to us, but also I couldn't get out today. And so uh, we were lucky that they did. In any case, thank you for asking me about my eyes. I've had glaucoma surgery. I mean, I've had um, cataract surgery on both of my eyes in December. And um, my eyesight hasn't, uh, I can see better. I have a better prescription than I did, a, a less Coke bodily one. My glasses are thinner. My eyesight's not so hot right now. Um, I, we're on tour and I, I'm, you know, I'm dealing with it. But uh, I have to take a bunch of drops every day. And then I'm going to go get uh, surgery on my left eye and get a glaucoma stent put in. And we're going to Canada to do that. And then we'll go get the other eye down probably in the summertime. So that's where it is. And that's where it's at. And then um, the procedure you're getting is not available in the states yet. And there's not one as effective in the states. And um, our doctor is someone we trust quite a lot, and she's a, uh, a a shit hot surgeon and quite intelligent. And she has nothing to gain by telling us to go to another country. And um, um, the doctor we're going to is innovative. Um, I think a lot of people have these problems the more I talk to people, of course. It's common. The more you find out that everybody's had eye surgery or everybody's dad has, and I am everybody's dad. I am, in fact, your stoned uncle, and I'm here to tell you that one day you two will have an operation on your eyes. It's not as bad as you think, but, of course, I described it in great detail at New Year's, um, and I won't go into it again. Uh, So I'm going to get a stent in my left eye and then a stent in my right eye eventually. And uh, then I'm going to have cell clusters removed from the fronts of my retinas from your cornea corneas rather and um then i'm hoping to see better after that yeah it's quite a long list of procedures oh it's a sea cruise um it takes a while 
And in the meantime, uh, I bought a magnifying glass, which I think is pretty sexy. Um, I don't know whether to carry it with me. I wanted a, a, a velvet case to put it in. My mother used to have those when she was a cocktail waitress. She'd bring home crown royal bags, those purple ones, <laughs> and things went in them like coins right. or your precious Sh- belongings. Shouldn't you have something on a chain that you wear around your neck? Right, with a magnet. Because I don't want to wear a monocle or anything. No, I don't want to be no. Bud Freeman or, no. or Colonel Clink. God, no. Uh, that's too pretentious to wear a monocle yeah. or Otto yeah. Preminger in Stalag 13. But... But I do like the idea of carrying a magnifying glass around. It doesn't have a light, but it has an antique candle, so it looks like a Sherlock Holmes one. <laughs> and I bought it, and I, I was pr- I'm pretty excited about it, but I want to bring it on the plane with me. You could always have a photographer's loop. Jennifer pointed out to me that, yeah, <laughs> Jennifer, I know, that makes me think of you. Gen- Jennifer pointed out to me, there's an, on your phone, if you go to set, if you have an iPhone, you can go to settings, and there is a magnifying glass on your phone with a, and it works. I've been using it the last week. It's the awkwardness of holding your phone that drives me mad. I just feel like holding a magnifying glass is more elegant. Lou, but the phone does work. Lou Reed couldn't see. No, and, he couldn't. And he drove. He, <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. He developed uh, some kind of app that enabled you to see better on your computer. Really? I need that. Yes. Because that was the kind of thing. What Can are you, you see what my you... drink? That's what I'm... What? Yeah. How did you lose your drink? Well, I can't see. <laughs> Set it down so um, it's right over here underneath the bag that the drugs were in. See? That just proves the whole story. Here. <laughs> See how tragedy just starts to mount and then uh, snowballs and then tragedy just an unstoppable. Wow. There's no drink in here either. That's the real tragedy. I'm going to take you with me into the kitchen here. The Fortress of Perpetude. Because... This is, uh, Seriously? not only could I not wow. see my drink on the table and Jennifer had to identify it for me, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to pour, there we go, <laughs> I'm pouring the drink there. I hope you could hear that. Uh, and, and by the way, we're not having vodka tonight. You'll be, you'll be surprised to know it's tequila. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, we're versatile and it's, uh, Mardi Gras, as Jennifer said. So, laissez le bon temps rouler. This is the Preservation Hall jazz band. Go to the Mardi Gras. I'm sure you see that Zulu queen. Is there another city? Well, there are, obviously. But t- the distinct the distinct sound mm-hmm. of a New Orleans record, mm-hmm. um, which is copied in... Uh, Willie DeVille uh, did that album where he does Loop Guru and on, on that whole album where he does Bacon Fat and all that. Well, What's that called? Um, he, he did an album uh, that was uh, singles uh, from New Orleans history right. with, with Alan Toussaint and Eddie Bo. That's right. And uh, um, all those wonderful musicians. And, and um, Chuck Berry wrote um, C'est La Vie, which... Uh, of all of his songs, Signally doesn't sound like a Chuck Berry song. Sounds more like right. a Fats Domino song. Uh, it has that uh, well, and what does piano Fats lead. Domino not do? Fats Domino did everything for everyone. And as we were talking about earlier, uh, Fats Domino always he would cook on the road for himself. He would he make brought food, he, but he would make rice and beans in his hotel room. And uh, when Aretha Franklin passed away, we were reading about how she 
was was it at the Waldorf? Jennifer Hudson told a story about being at someone's funeral, and it was someone heavy in New York, and I can't remember who it was. And they were both staying at the Waldorf Astoria, and Aretha had a kitchenette in her room, or, and called Jennifer Hudson in her room and said, "Come over, I'm making chicken." And that was the greatest <laughs> story ever. Fats Domino brought food on the road and cooked in the room with a cooker. Yeah, yeah. Because all they needed was a hot plate and a thing because they would put a pot on and then put gumbo in it. There was the story from 2004, 2005 from Mojo where the British reporter goes to visit him where he lived. And he lived in the Ninth Ward. Mm-hmm. He had to be airlifted, as you recall, by a helicopter Fats Domino uh, during Katrina. And Fats is sitting in the kitchen with everybody. And they're making gumbo. There's a whole bunch of people there. And there's a giant pot on the stove. And he's directing the gumbo making. He's not taking part in it. So other people are chopping and cooking. He's going, put in them sausages and put in the shrimp, whatnot. And then he goes, I spend $250, $300 a day on groceries. And then he goes, you have to remember I'm five foot four, but I weigh like 300 pounds and shit. That's and impressive. It was just great. He didn't drink and he didn't chase. He was married to the same woman. He had a large family whom he loved. He didn't like being on the road that much. He stopped going on the road uh, eventually uh, as much as he... In the 50s, he toured the world 50 times. He, like, he toured as much as anybody toured in the 50s. Oh, my God, yeah. And and that... Um, the And sold more records the than anybody, French, by the way. Yes, the French TV show that's on YouTube of him and Dave Bartholomew in France is one of the most delightful... It's from the early 60s, and it's a two-hour concert. The French people are wearing sunglasses and smoking, and they get up and do When the Saints Go Marching in to close the show, and the place goes bananas. And at one point, uh, Bartholomew's sitting on the stage. Yeah. He's just exhausted. And they do every single Fats Domino hit. They do Walking to New Orleans, Blue Monday, uh, 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 um, I'm Walking, uh, my favorite one, uh, Baby, Don't You Let Your Dog Buy Me In a Minute. Um, the one where he says, yes, it's me, and I'm in love again. Uh, and they look delighted. They're so much fun. And that's really the New Orleans sound, because mm-hmm. they go from doing a rhythm and blues rock and roll show to doing the Saints go marching in. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in the documentary we were watching with Fats Domino, the American Masters one, I think Dave Bartholomew says, we always closed with that. Mm-hmm. Even in the 50s, we closed with that. And everybody would get up and dance. Like, it's pretty wild. This is tuba skinny. <laughs> <laughs> this looks like a, a like, group of Mumford and Sonny White yeah, guys yeah, playing. Uh, and like all great partnerships, they were arguing when they were elderly about who wrote what. Yeah. They kind of had a detente at the end of Fat's life, but not really. Fat's only just uh, went a summer ago. Yeah, yeah. How did he make it through... That much gumbo? No, but um, being evacuated from uh, after Katrina. He was lifted from his house. It was such a scandal. I think he was living in a, a professional athlete's house with yeah. his wife for a while. Right. And then it, the wife passed. It's a scandal because he was a national treasure. He's like Mount Rushmore. Yeah. I don't I don't understand what Fats Domino didn't do for America. You couldn't get a date in 1958. You couldn't go out in the 50s. I don't think anyone... Chuck Berry is a, a, a spirited troubadour, and before we knew all the personal things about him that we don't want to know, uh, a delightful figure. Um, a great lyricist. Right. Jerry Lee, who's still alive, is an awful, unsupportable human being. Um, Richard, Little Richard is, as you 
had to describe to you a pervert's pervert and a drug addict's drug addict, although <laughs> an absolute founder and originator of rock and roll. Um, Fats Domino is one of the nice people. Yes. He's not only an innovator and a scalding piano player of infinite talent, a tremendous performer and a delight, uh, delightful lyricist. He was a genuinely good guy. Mm -hmm. So I was having a conversation with Bob Durkacz and he was telling me that he played with James Brooker um, in the long ago. That's, that's so exciting. Right. James Brooker is a, a piano player from... Uh, that's minimizing. He's a fabulous <laughs> musician from New Orleans whose, whose main thrust was the piano. And I was telling him that I'd read it. And I said, how was he? And I go, did he demand to have Cajun food all the time or, or New Orleans food? And he went, no, I don't remember that. He said that all they did was get high and rehearse constantly and that their act was really tight and great and that James Brooker was amazing. And um, Jennifer's friend, Pat, who owns Green Arcade Books in San Francisco, he's my friend as well, uh, gave me a book about this cat who managed the Grateful Dead, not Bill Graham, but this other uh, cat. He managed all these uh, acts or was involved in the music business, and starting with Liberace, which is the best part of the book, and then taking the Grateful Dead to the pyramids with Bill Graham and all that, which Bill Graham didn't produce, this guy did. <laughs> and he's managing um, Jerry Garcia's solo band, which is kind of a bluegrassy, folky outfit. And I don't know if Dave... Grisman, who was his partner. Jerry Garcia used to play with the mandolin player named Grisman. Anyway, mm -hmm. they get James Brooker to be in the band, and he flies out, and he's wearing leather pants and an eye patch. And they pick him up at SFO. Well, he couldn't see through one eye. No, he had... Right, he couldn't see through one eye. So he's eccentric, to say the least, and contentious. And, um, and, and by the way, gay and black. And from New Orleans. And, and a virtuoso. So uh, the guy describes the gigs with Jerry and goes, James Brooker's killing it. The crowd's going bananas. Jerry's loving it. He's wonderful. The band is on fire. And after a couple months, James Brooker comes to him and goes, I got to go. And he's like, what do you mean you got to go? We're killing, like, we can't sell enough tickets and, you know. And he goes, I don't like the food, man. I, I got to go back to New Orleans. And Have you ever thought that that might have been a, yeah, of course a I nice did. excuse? I did think of it would be an excuse. <laughs> but that was... I, Louis Armstrong, Tiger Rag, 1932. Again, what did Louis Armstrong not do? Right. A Jewish family helped him, which is why he wore a Star of David all the time. And uh, uh, he's not the first person to play jazz, but he was born at the time jazz was invented in 1900. And by the time he was a teenager, he was a proponent of it. And because he played in other Cats bands... He lived like, in an orphanage. Right. Because he played in King Oliver's band, and King Oliver was like one of the great uh, early jazz band leaders in New Orleans. We're going to take a little trip through the jungles this time, and we want y'all to travel with us. That tiger's running so fast, we're going to take a few courses to catch him. <laughs> y'all want y'all to count with me? Yes, sir. He's so young here. Pops. I remember what I'm ready means. Here's Sat here's Louis Armstrong playing. I would point out how sophisticated his... Right? Uh, he's wild and beautiful, but he's he doesn't miss... He was arrested as a child yeah. on the streets of New Orleans. Yeah. 
I think he did more to make jazz popular than almost any human being because he toured the world ceaselessly till the day he died. Mm-hmm. And um, and talk about seeming like a lovely person. Indefatigable, yeah. I'm ready. Um, often meant they'd smoked a fat one. Mm-hmm. He was a habitual marijuana smoker. Drink was not his um, thing. Right. It reminds me of Dizzy Gillespie. Mm. He said marijuana is better than 50 whiskeys. Um, he smoked dope every day and um, was able to tour the world and be Louis Armstrong and invent jazz. So we're pretty proud of him. <laughs> kind of like Bob Marley, but with 40 more years. <laughs> Although he only made it to 69 or 70. He wasn't... And, how tasteful is he, though? That's what I always... Right? And completely wild. We talk about bop, but you hear what they're... <laughs> Fantastic cutaway. Uh... The show really should start at a certain point. Um, does that mean everything has to be a bummer, Greg, and you just cut off the fun? No, not really. Uh, I want to talk about where I'm gigging because everything has to come back to me and how astonishing what I'm doing is. <laughs> I'm. Uh, we're on the road with the Who's Live guys, and uh, we're going to be this week uh, in the Great Northwest when I say the Great Northwest, uh, by the time this one comes out, we'll have already probably played Eugene, but we'll be in Salem on Thursday, Seattle on Friday, and uh, Anna Cortez on Saturday and Sunday. The week after that, we'll, that's with Ryan Stiles. We'll be with uh, Charles Chip Eston, you know him as Deacon, from the television show Nashville. March 16th in Chattanooga, which is one of the great town names. And uh, the 21st in... Uh, Oh, did I miss Nashville? I skipped right over Nashville. There it is. The 15th in Nashville, Tennessee, at the James Knox Polk Theater. (laughs) (laughs) At the Rutherford B. Hayes Playhouse of the Performing Arts. Who's Tyler? Is it James or John? I could never remember. There's Taylor and Tyler, and they're both awful. They're all the slave owner presidents. Yeah. Hurrah. Right? The James Knox Polk Theater is just hilarious. The Millard Fillmore, bountiful cornucopia of the... Then we're in Chattanooga, um, which I think next to Natchez... Um, uh, what's that place in... Well, Miss, Mississippi and uh, Illinois, I think, have beautiful names. Uh, the Walker Theater with Charles Eston. Then uh, we're back to Norfolk, Virginia... Uh, that's Norfolk, for those of you who are from Virginia. They say it, Norfolk? Mm-hmm. Like English people. They don't say Norfolk. They say Norfolk. Uh, the 21st of May, uh, March, at the um, Harrison Opera House. Couldn't be one of them. Uh, with David Foley from the Kids in the Hall, who's joined our group, and we're, couldn't be more excited. We have Charles Eston. We have David Foley. We have Ryan Stiles, and we have Drew Carey in the group this year, along with me, uh, Joel Murray, who you'll know from Mad Men, and uh, the awesome movie God Bless America, and Jeff Davis, who, I don't know, remains in obscurity in a lot of ways. <laughs> Late of Harmontown. Uh, Baltimore, Maryland, the Modell Lyric with uh, Dave Foley on the 22nd. Baltimore, I dig a lot. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, is it the South? Is it the North? Um, is it rough? Is the it tough? The mystery continues. Is it sophisticated? Is it? Is it... Hickey, is it 
uh, yeah, it's got all those things going on. Um, it's the home of the Boog Powell pork chop sandwich. It's the home of submarine sandwiches with mayonnaise. It's the home of John Waters. It's the home of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really sure how to sort this out for you in any way, shape, or form, and I'm not prepared to. However, if you come to the Modell Lyric on the 22nd of March, we're sure to have a good time. We always enjoy playing in Baltimore, and this time I'm going to the Poe thing. Jeff went last time, and I didn't go because I took a nap and ate a submarine sandwich, but this time I'm going. I don't think Poe was a good person or anything like that. It has nothing to do with his personality. He's simply too titanic to ignore, I think. Yes. Although the Peter Ackroyd book gave me pause. Well, it cured me of liking him as a person. To consider, well, it's not just that, but that his his, uh, premise that Poe may have gleaned several of his ideas from the African... Slaves. Slaves, yes, that were... Uh, his his stepfather's Mr. Allen, yeah. whose name he took. His name was not Allen. Um, uh, he adopted his his father's. Uh, the stepfather's name was A L L A N, and so he took that name. Was it A N or Ian? I don't remember. There we go. And um, Edgar Allan Poe took that name on. Um, he quite enjoyed slavery and thought it was a kind of a, a fa- yeah, you know fantastic it's institution. Devastating to read that, and so. During the one point in his life where he lived in a life of gentility, which apparently was the point of his life that he really liked. He lived in the UK. Um, there was slavery and, or when he lived in Virginia, IA. And then later, of course, the starvation years in New York and whatnot. And yes, he was with his cousin, but the truth was he was fixated on the cousin's mother. It wasn't about the cousin. He wasn't actually interested in her, I don't think, as much. It's, it's all very complicated. Right, when he wasn't busy railing against people who were trying to help him. He, not only did he rail against people who tried to help him, he had a poisonous pen and was a, a, a literary critic who was known for his vicious attacks on other giants of literature of the 19th century, including James Fenimore Cooper. That makes me think it's absolutely true that he stole stories from... I would say he did, but if there's a genius in theft, and we've talked about it often, geniuses steal, Bob Dylan, um, you take wholesale and you make it yours, and that's what the genius is. Yeah, but that's great, but the people that he stole from didn't have a voice. Well, it's cultural appropriation of the highest caliber. Um, There's no question of that. Um, uh, Like I said, uh, nothing points to me liking him. I'm simply interested in his phenomenon, and uh, that... There's moments in his writing that are like unlike any other author. He he's Lovecraft's weirdness and the watery kind of thing to me dissolve a little bit of the the absolute eerie horror that he's able to bring in those weird letters well, that Lovecraft he writes. Lovecraft always like brings that. the fun of anti-Semitism. Well, but that, right, that's his personal <laughs> life. But I mean, people floppily flopping and yeah, greasily in Cthulhu doesn't scare me as much as his letters that he writes are full of foreboding. When it's a, when it's a correspondence and the letters get weirder and yes. weirder, that to me speaks more mental illness and a real paranoia that. Poe was able to crystallize. Well, Poe crystallized yeah, yeah. terror and he crystallized horror and the idea that you could be revulsed by yourself yes. and that you could be revulsed by what you're able to do as a as a terrible person. Ab- absolutely. Uh, painting yourself in a corner and, and the paranoia. Yeah. Uh, when we saw Burkhoff do Telltale Heart, right? that was phenomenal. Don't tell me about the old man. I love the old man. Oh my God. God. Well, that's the, that's the thing. It's like we're not talking about Poe as a person. We're talking about it as a thing of art. 
And no, this doesn't answer the question whether you can separate the artist from the art. No, you can't. And yes, a bunch of people have to be canceled. And yeah, it's sad and shit. I get it. Moving on. Uh, then we're going to um, Atlantic City, New Jersey, where there's um, uh, little to discuss. Uh, no, we'll be at the Ovation Hall at the Ocean Resort Casino. We played the place where Bruce Springsteen always played. What's that place called? No, we played... Um, is it Asbury Park? Mm-hmm. No, no. What? It's the... It's it's a building that's on the cover of the Asbury Park album. We played that actual building I don't in know Atlantic City, New Jersey, and I bought these really I've weird never stickers. Been to Atlantic City. It was so thank you. It was weird. Anyway, um, the building Bruce had played a million times, and it was quite hot inside, and it had the acoustics of. You'll remember this of like Winterland or mm-hmm. it wasn't very good, right? Like for a band, you're fine because you could just turn it up for a comedy group. Bloody awful, right? So we did a sound check. We did. David was there with us. It was me, Jeff, David and Joel. And um, we gave it the old college try and we brought people up and we did our improv. And there was people. They were nice. They were lovely Jersey people. We love people from Jersey. They're rough and tough. And um, they like, you know, I, I like that because I like to mix it up. So, uh, you know, give me Pittsburgh. Right, some attitude. Right, give me Glasgow. I, d- just don't lay there like a lump in the night. Get, have a personality, at least. Even if, it, even if your personality is, we're going to argue over a meatball. <laughs> um, and so we finish, and we're limping toward the finish line. And um, we bring this guy out to do story. And he's a dude. And he's about a 50-year-old, 60-year-old dude from New Jersey. And we turn the story toward Springsteen, and he starts to sing... Springsteen and we all joined in and the crowd stood up <laughs> and we finished the show, everyone singing Springsteen and that, and they left like this. Wow. This was the best show we've ever. And I thought we won the day and we all looked at each other when we came off stage. It was pouring sweat. There was no ventilation in the room. There was a, and it was raining outside. It was hot inside and raining outside. And that one I'll never forget because it finished with everyone on stage going, Oh baby, we were born to like just this insanity and the crowd got up too and that's when you know you're in Jersey and uh, my manager's from Jersey and remember when you dance like Bruce Springsteen you cannot move your hips because that would indicate that you're homosexual or camp you have to go like this <laughs> my manager went to Broadway and saw um, Bruce Springsteen on Broadway and it was like oh my god it was the best show I've ever seen and, and those, it's like, you're from New Jersey, of course it was. insanely expensive tickets. Um, I think I, thousands of dollars. I, I just A thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. I, I don't, yeah. I know. I know, no, I know. No. Um, anyway, Atlantic City, come out and see us. Although <laughs> the people will tell you that live at the shore, um, it's not Jersey, Jersey. It's up, it's up. It's near Philly. It's an hour from Philly that way. And like Jersey's down the other way. Anyway. Sacramento on the 29th, that's with Ryan Stiles. And then um, Vegas uh, on March 30th, little Doc Pomus for you there. And um, the Smith Center with Ryan Stiles. Didn't Doc forget that he wrote that? And then all of a sudden yes. he was living in New York, yes. organizing a gambling game for gangsters at his apartment in it, with his wheelchair. I recommend the movie about him. It's He's living in a wheelchair in an apartment building in New York City, setting up high stakes poker games for what are clearly with, uh, mafia people. With Chico Marx's widow. Chico Marx's widow. And a hitman. There's a dude who's uh, 
clearly kills people for a living. Yeah. And his children, who are in the movie and are yeah. now in middle age, ha- are sent to the his store daughter. to get pastrami right. and beer would, and fags. Would go get yeah. cigarettes. Yeah. And with a note, alcohol. Right. And, and go, I need 16 pastrami sandwiches and 25 bags of potato chips and I, a carton of. The book is also really good. And I think. Is it a is it a member of the Gambino family that's yeah. killed in the lobby? There, there was an Italian restaurant in the lobby of the building he's living in, and he is working with Phil Spector. Well, I think it's a place they frequent, oh. and that's where they and frequent. Phil Spector yeah. is terrified. For, Phil Spector is scared. Doc Thomas isn't even no. The, a guy ruffled. gets a guy gets aced in an Italian that they eat at. Yeah, and Doc Thomas is like, "Hey, aced. you want to go there next week?" No, no, like right, no. And like, Phil Spector is like, "No, maybe not. Right, not he's, so much." systematically killed by a mafia, you know, one of those hits. And Doc Thomas is like, and then... And meanwhile, he's writing these beautiful songs. This magic moment, (laughs) so tender and with like any other, till I found you and then it happened. Benny King and him were good mates. Right. Um, He wrote Save the Last Dance for Me. He wrote This Magic Moment. He wrote um, uh, uh, Viva Las Vegas. He wrote Little Sister. He wrote Teenager in Love. Um, and he also wrote songs with uh, uh, Willie DeVille and uh, Dr. John. Just to walk that little girl home. I would give anything. Um, Doc Pomus's documentary is really good. Um, and scary. Quite scary. Uh, then we're in Louisville on the 4th of April at the Kentucky Center for the Performing Arts with David Foley. We do a little realm with Dave. Uh, Kentucky, Bloomington, Indiana. Which, by the way, is pretty hip. I would call Bloomington the Berkeley of the Midwest along with Madison. Uh, there's one street in Bloomington that has all the ethnic restaurants. Everything else in Bloomington is barbecue and, you know, burgers, whatnot, a sports bar. And then one street has two Tibetan. Really? Yes. Uh, a Vietnamese, a, 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 a Thai, a, a, the Mexican, you know, that's the street. And it's, and then I, um, because it's a college town, I bought you, um, I think I bought Take Five there, the mm, album mm-hmm. for you there. That's nice. There's a, a vinyl store there. There's lots of good bookstores. In fact, the last time I was there as a stand-up, we did. Uh, it was the weekend that Dave Brubeck. Um, it wasn't Take Ten by Paul Desmond. Was it Take Ten? Did I buy you that one there? Might have been. Did I buy you that one? I think so. Well, it might have been that one there. Paul Desmond. Um, Brubeck um, went to the heavens that weekend because I remember I was going to give him an obituary and I didn't. And I held kittens up and just played take five and the crowd went bananas because <laughs> everyone knows take five. Uh, he did for jazz what uh, Leonardo did for art with the Mona Lisa. He made a thing that everyone knows. And um, have I told this story before in the show? I'll tell it briefly because I'm willing to. Go we, ahead. We were playing, thank you, in um, uh, Stockton, California. Um, at, I can't remember where, and we were staying at this little crib there, and it was me, Charles Eston, Jeff Davis, Laura Hall, uh, Sean Masterson, I can't remember who else, and um, I don't know if Ryan was there, and uh, we went down to breakfast, and we were all in the elevator together, and Jeff tells the story better than I do, because he, he his memory of it is much more distinct than mine. To make a long story short, at a table... In the coffee shop at this hotel in Stockton, California, is Dave Brubeck, his wife, and another couple. <laughs> That's right, Dave Brubeck, the inventor and, well, progenitor of West Coast Jazz. Um, 
um, Blue Rondo Alaturk, you may have heard of him. He is sitting there and was, and um, Laura, our, uh, you know from Whose Line Is It Anyway, she's our keyboard player. Her face goes slack. Her jaw drops. And she's like, Brubeck. When a piano player meets another piano player, as Keith Emerson once brilliantly, I had the very good pleasure, Jennifer and I, to, oh, was to know Keith Emerson ever so briefly. And um, uh, he came to uh, a gig. I met him at a gig and he came to a gig. And um, He came to the podcast. He came to the podcast. And he said to me that he met Dave Brubeck. And Keith Emerson gave me his business card. And it was him playing a keyboard that was a fire. <laughs> if you remember Keith Emerson from Emerson, Michael Palmer, he was a progressive rock demon. And he played classical music as well. And at one point in the show, he lit his keyboard on fire. And he would play the keys with the thing. And he, and he was kind of, we were both drunk. And he said to me, Greg, and Dave Brubeck said to me, Keith, can I ask you a question? How do you play the keyboard when it's on fire? And I cried <laughs> laughing, right? <laughs> and so I pitch up at this uh, place in Stockton. It's, it's 8.30 in the morning, maybe. And I go, excuse me, Mr. Brubeck, it's always been my assertion that it's very good luck to meet a genius before breakfast. May I shake your hand? And he goes, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and I introduced him to the rest of my short, right, right? Sit right down. Yeah, yeah. My group, I introduced him like, yeah, this is who and who. And, and I'm sitting with him now. I'm, they're not invited to the table. And Jeff has told this with great rancor on the bus several times <laughs> because he was not invited to sit at the table, nor did I entreat them to in sit Stockton, with us. In Stockton, of all places. So I said, Dave, are you gigging here? And he goes, no. Um, I'm teaching a course at UOP, right? The University of the mm -hmm. Pacific at Stockton, which is a big university there. And I go, oh, that's great. And we, I, I'm introduced to everyone at the table. And I look like everyone at the table, right? It's nothing but, <clears throat> yeah, it's nothing but Jews with glasses on, right? Not his sons. His the sons, sons aren't there. It was in it was the, the band. Well, that's who I think, I think he was doing a symposium. So I don't think he was, Oh, right. I don't think he had the, right. uh, the outfit with him. And um, Jeff, when he's told the story, he's like, you I can't believe you thought of that to say it the morning. And I'm like, I, I, it came to me. But you were genuine. Yeah. It's my good, it's my assertion that it's great. It's good luck to meet a genius before breakfast. I hadn't eaten yet, but I was sitting next to Dave Brubeck for, well, I don't know, 10 minutes. We had a that's, conversation. That's a good breakfast. In five, please. Um, the House passed two gun reform uh, bills. Uh, they're not, they haven't become law yet. Um, Representative Lucy McBath said the culture is changing. People have decided enough's enough and that they want to make sure that their children's lives are preserved. It's bittersweet because I wasn't able to save my own child and so many others. And what were you telling me about Bloomberg? Um, he helped... Uh, her camp finance her campaign because he's made it a point he's not going to run but he wants to finance people who are going to put forward gun control I love him for that I hate him for so many other things and that I can set aside um, so th this one is to require background checks for all gun purchasers including those at gun shows and on the internet it's the first significant you guys in other countries this is the first significant gun control bill to clear the chamber in a quarter of a century. That's scandalous. There's no, um, it was the Clinton administration was the last time anyone cared about gun control or that anything got passed. 
The Republicans do no oversight on this, and I can't stress this enough. They insist that women are murderers. They insist that migrants are a threat to the security of the nation. And what the real threat is, is white men with guns who are uh, um, domestic abusers. Nancy Pelosi said uh, Lucy McBath turning her grief and her tragedy into action and courage to run for Congress, to stand on the floor and share her personal story with us. That takes real courage. Adding that the statistics of gun violence victims spell out the story, but it's the human personal stories that change minds. Finally, we've done more than thoughts and prayers. Finally, we've taken a vote to expand background checks and help save lives, said Representative Mike Thompson, who's from California, who led uh, the Congressional Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. For six long years, we worked on this issue, and the previous majority would not even let us have a hearing, let alone a vote, to expand background checks. So how important was it that the last midterm changed oh, the Congress so over? And this is nice. There were a 100 student activists upstairs there to watch them vote on it, and they were wearing uh, orange scarves, ties, and blazers to show their support. Um, uh, and then... I love this headline, Pelosi passes second gun control bill because yep. she's we love Nancy Pelosi. Um, so then they voted to extend the time allotted for the FBI to conduct background checks for gun purchasers who are flagged. So they before they only had three days and now they have 10 days, three days. This is all just crazy, right? It's 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 really it's really kind of shocking when you think of the. The problem in the country and that these are just uh, the bare minimum of what we should be doing. And that was uh, Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina. But it's just, it's exhausting. It's, and, and it really shows it's very important that people show up to vote every election. And that this woman, Lucy McBath, had the courage after her son Jordan was killed to run for office and and uh, effect change. And uh, she's a hero. The other thing that was uh, happened this weekend was um, the Selma Jubilee and uh Hillary Clinton was there and she got an international unity award. There was a breakfast, uh, in her honor. And, uh, she spoke at the church, according to, uh, Melissa Brown in the Montgomery Adverti advertiser, uh, representative Terry Sewell said, our work is not done. We love to say that we stand on the shoulders of greatness and we do, but we all have our work to do. Uh, Terry Sewell is a representative from mm -hmm. Alabama. Um, I know my marching orders because I know from whence I come. Sewell, a Selma native, said my marching orders are to restore the full protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yep. Former Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, who was honored with the International Unity Award. Really the, former Secretary of State. Of right. At the, at the Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King Unity Breakfast. I would have said President in absentia. Right. Echoed, 
uh, Sewell's call at Brown Chapel, calling the Holder decision absurd. Clinton said it's impossible to tackle other economic or social issues without first protecting the right to vote. Don't just come to Selma once a year, Clinton said. Don't just walk across the bridge. Don't just join hands and sing. We've got to get to work. That means registering each person and persuading them that their future depends on them showing up to vote. Let us celebrate this 54th anniversary, but let us not mistake what our mission must be. I come from a faith tradition of being a doer, not just a hearer of the word. If we do our part, we can take back the country and put it back on the path that was forged here in Selma 54 years ago. She also said, when racist and white supremacist views are lifted up in the media in the White House, when our hard-fought civil rights are being stripped back, when the single most important fight of our time which makes it possible to fight every other fight and must be, as Frederick Douglass would say, our North Star. The fight to protect our vote is not gathering the momentum and energy and the passion it deserves. We have a lot of work to do, don't we? Mm-hmm. She was also there to meet with Emerge Alabama, which is a new group um, that she supports. And uh, they have, in the, their first year, trained 39 women and 20 Eight of them ran for office. That's just smashing. She said former Georgia gubernatorial candidate and deliverer of the Democratic message, you may recall, at the S of the Union, who lost the election last year by a close margin, which was completely rigged, should be governor leading the state right now, should be governor. Mm-hmm. She sounded the alarm as a legislator back in 2014. Her state was systematically suppressing the right to vote. To combat the issue, Clinton said Abrams, quote, rolled up her sleeves, and she registered about 300,000 black voters. Clinton questioned why, according to her, there were fewer registered voters in Georgia during 2016 than there had been during 2012. So suppression is real. Hillary Clinton is real. Hillary Clinton is a hero for going there. Yes. She received the award for going there. And she doesn't just walk the fucking... She does. She talks. The, she walks the walk and she talks the talk. She does everything that she says she's going to do. And that's activism, and that's well, all and, we can and, try and to do. Been working uh, toward that end since she was in her twenties. Um, the very real difference in the sides is. I was reading an article this week about she should run, and of course Emily's list and um, uh, uh, all the women's voting rights organizations that are trying to organize and get women to run for office and um, the question was posed to one of the heads how many Republican women are you seeing and she was like not nearly enough she goes in order for there to be complete representation there needs to be women on every angle mm-hmm. and you're just not seeing it now mm-hmm. and there's a reason for that and mm-hmm. that's the big difference between the two parties one party is the party of blaming women for Mm-hmm. their own need for health care. One party is the party of blaming women for being shot by men. Uh, and the other party is trying to take back the night a little bit. Um, I, you know, I won't hit this too hard. I'm going to touch on it and move on. I honestly believe there's too many men running on the Democratic side this time. Thank you. And I think that uh, all the men that are running on the Democratic side might well, rethink their especially positions. Especially the white men. I wasn't going to, not Healy and Castro, but right. the other ones, they know their names. Um, read the room. 
and read history and don't be tone deaf. This is a time for epochal, monumental, um, gigantic landslide change. There can't be another way because we're not going to be able to save the democracy if we don't do it. And that way it seems clear to me um, that women are going to lead that, that women of color are the engine of uh, uh, liberal politics. Whether you want to call it socialism or swinging to the left or all the things they're throwing at us and the crap media narrative that gets get throwing at us that somehow not wanting to die from guns, well, somehow but- wanting to have universal health care, somehow wanting to have abortion is some sort of giant threat to security, which it isn't. I think that people forget what LBJ got done. Yes. During his administration, but, uh, food stamps and the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. and uh, Miranda. Yes, yes. It was he put profound, their good marshal on the profound. court. He put their good marshal. Yeah, he, he he asked their good marshal. Demanded. To, yeah, <laughs> he didn't ask. He basically talked their good. But marshal it changed in. our world. I think this we're at the same moment, uh, and but I think the same things people are need happening. to know their history. Well, they don't. And, um, they need to know that Hillary put forward a, a broader health care package when she was first lady, but she wasn't allowed to because she was viewed as first lady and that wasn't her realm. Her setting up an office in the White House was seen as a threat to society. The D.C. press corps couldn't talk enough about how jumped up she was, how out of her lane she was, how much power she was um, taking Without any, uh, oh, no first lady's ever done this before. They're supposed to wear hats and plan luncheons. And um, at their, uh, which of course is nonsense. Let's go back and talk about all the first ladies that Hillary stood on their shoulder pads. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt is the greatest, next to Hillary Clinton, the greatest first lady of all time. Lady Bird Johnson, Mm -hmm. uh, Betty Ford, uh, Rosalind Carter, Mm -hmm. Jacqueline Kennedy, um, they're all superb women w- with intelligence, grace, refinement, culture. The things they lent the White House were things their husband couldn't lend the White House. Lady Bird Johnson invented the idea that the United States shouldn't be filled with garbage. Mm-hmm. She invented the idea that we she could was clean, an ecologist. clean up the environment. That's her. Mm-hmm. Um, Jacqueline Kennedy uh, tried to imbue the country with a sense of we need to be sophisticated international and well, to under- venerate our culture and right. understand culture uh, right she had uh, conductors and musicians and opera singers at the white house and knew, knew and spoke their language that white house was uh, uh what you uh, people always ask that an idiotic question who would your ultimate uh, dinner party be jfk did it night after night FDR did it night after night. Um, a lot of presidents that wanted to know what the world was about mm-hmm. did it. Even Reagan had, because Nancy was a socialite, and Nancy well, was and a, Nancy was probably our president for, for a good part of that. Like second Edith, term, Judith Wilson, I think uh, Woodrow Wilson's first lady. Woodrow wasn't so healthy for about four or five years, and. Ike wasn't so healthy, let's be honest, for the last, mm, after the heart attack, I think Mamie might have been. Which heart attack? Yeah, the first and second one. Um, a lot of people don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. Reagan wasn't Compass Menace, and mm-hmm. Nancy was definitely 
a baller and a shot caller. She wasn't going to let it be another way. That's mm-hmm. the thing. It's like she was a modern. Um, although I think Judith Wilson was a modern first lady and was going like, no, no, no. I want everything crosses my desk before you sign it. I don't want to hear about you. Because I'm the de facto spokesperson for him. He's not going to. I think it goes further back than that. Way further back. I think Mary Todd had. Uh, Yeah. um, Well, Martha. Uh, Yeah. I mean, let's go to the first president. The reason why George had position, power, prestige, and any leverage was that Martha gave him the farm, literally the farm, Mm -hmm. the hundreds of slaves that worked the farm, the wherewithal, the ability to travel, the well, there was a family that backed him after his brother died. His brother was the Joe Kennedy of John Kennedy's. Right. And he never went to Europe, but he did go to Barbados, was it, for a rum run? I know. Isn't that bizarre? No, the Caribbean is an annex of America, and especially the East Coast, especially in the 18th century. It was easier to get to, I think, than anywhere else. You could take a well, week-long boat definitely. ride, a two-day boat ride to the Caribbean instead of a... How long was it to get to Europe? A month? Yes, but you're also talking about a period when uh, several uh, members of indigenous uh, peoples had been to Europe and back, spoke different languages, and yet the first president hadn't been to Europe. No, that's a very good point. Well taken. Um, If anyone's seen The Revenant, and I'm sure you have, um, you'll notice that the Indian tribes in the movie speak... Not only their languages and the other Indian languages, but many of them speak French and English and French and English and French or English and consort with the uh, colonizers. Who, and, who wrote uh, 1491? Richard Mann. Mm-hmm. You can correct me. <laughs> and um, Jonathan Mann? I'm looking at him. Uh, Charles Mann. Charles Mann. Uh, and... Uh, Squanto and Samoset, uh, who the pilgrims met in 1621, had been taken on a previous voyage by Brits back to England, where they learned English. Obviously, the, uh, the entire continent of the United States um, spoke French and English f- from the 17th century on, and maybe even the 16th and Spanish, Spanish, sorry, I left that out, mm-hmm. uh, where we live spoke Spanish from the 1500s on. And where the East Coast lived spoke, and the Midwest spoke. How many Aztecs live in L.A.? All of them? 25,000? Right here. Right? Speaking of Aztecs, we're doing uh, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas in Tokyo. Uh, that might have been the, the most awkward segue in the history of mankind. <laughs> I don't know the um, uh, venue. I'm trying to find it. Uh, but we will be in Tokyo on the 25th and 26th of uh, May um, with The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I believe... Danny's going, and all the singers are going. I don't know that Catherine and Ken are. I assume they are. Tough one, that. They're going to uh, the UK. Definitely. In December, on the 2nd, we'll be at the SSE Hydro in Glasgow. On the uh, 4th and 5th, we'll be at the SSE Arena in Wembley. And then on uh, the 8th, we'll be in Dublin. And that's with um, Catherine O'Hara and Ken Page playing... um, Sally and Oogie Boogie. We also want to wish Catherine her a happy birthday. It was her birthday yesterday. She's 14 years old. Oh my God, she's so lovely. Catherine her is the funniest person in <laughs> we the world. Were, we were crying laughing watching her crying last laughing. night. She's the top. She's the Louvre Museum. She's the top. She's the Coliseum. As Carrie Grant said, you're Mickey Mouse. Uh, 
we will be in two places that I want to tell you about. On the uh, 15th, I'll be in Chicago at the Star Wars Celebration at the McCormick Place. I'll be signing um, autographs all day. I'm coming in quite early. And uh, uh, it'll be uh, Star Wars and whatnot. <laughs> all day long. Uh, there's all these stars there. You can go to the website and look it up. It's on my. Uh, it's on gregproops.com. Um, all the people from all the latest Star Wars pictures are going to be there. And um, it's the first one I've ever done. So I'll be happy to meet you and happy to sign your picture and happy to take a picture with you and happy to shake your hand and all that jazz. And then I'll be in Washington, D.C. the um, 31st of May through the 1st of uh, June doing stand-up at the D.C. Improv. And the Proopcast is on the 2nd. Yes, as promised, it will be all women on the bill um, here's a quick item I wanted to get to. Um, Planned Parenthood. Uh, Title IX happened this week, and it was just shocking. Um, the, this uh, crap administration is um, trying to restrict uh, women's rights to go to um, Planned Parenthood and seek any type of health care at all. And it's imperative that uh, we uh, take arms against this and... Uh, Planned Parenthood will have a table at my show, is what I'm getting at, one. And two, um, I want to hip you to something that, let's see here. There we go. That's the one I want. No, no, there. Ah, here we are. Um, the new head of Planned Parenthood is uh, Dr. Leanna Wen, and she's the president. And I want to read you a little bit of this item here. The Trump administration's gag rule will prevent patients who rely on Title 10, not Title 9, excuse me, our nation's only program focused on affordable birth control and reproductive health care from accessing life-saving care at Planned Parenthood. It will also make it illegal for health care providers in the program to refer patients for abortion. This is um, a total um, right-hand drive to the bucket here. This is wild misogyny mm-hmm. and... Um, uh, really out of hand. They're blaming women for these, uh, these, they've made up this weird murder that women are doing and they keep driving well, this narrative. Well, they're anti-science. Oh. It doesn't make sense at all. It's just to punish people. None of it. So, um, as you know, Planned Parenthood does cancer screenings in every manner of women's health care and that abortion is only a part of women's health care. I've said it before and I'm going to say it again because I feel I can't drive it home enough. If you're a pro-life person and you love children so much, then you need to campaign ceaselessly to have them disinterred from the camps they're being put in mm-hmm. and to be that they be fed and educated and not shot by we men. We read today that 16 babies were taken by ICE in Texas. Yeah. I'm not buying the They've evangelical yeah, view that they love children so much. Um, you can go to uh, weareplannedparenthood.org and sign um, uh, a petition about the gag rule. You can also give them money. And um, it's a real awesome thing to do. They're going to have a table in Washington, D.C. at our podcast uh, on the 2nd of June. Uh, we try to have one at every single podcast. And uh, we're... Uh, Excited to have them there. They've agreed to do it. So I wanted to mention that. And uh, moving on, I wanted to mention these awesome items. Uh, the USA soccer team had a match in Nashville against Britain, or England rather, uh, over the weekend. But the the real item is that um, all the players wore uh, kits that had famous women on the back of them to honor women because it's Women's History Month. 
uh, it was called the She Believes Tournament. And uh, some of the women that were represented on the back of the unis were Jennifer Lawrence, Sally Ride. You may remember her, the fabulous astronaut, Serena Williams, Carrie Underwood, Elena Deladon, the Hooper, Brianna Scurry, the great footballer, Cardi B, the great rapper, Doris Burke, J.K. Rowling, uh, Malala Yousafi, the Nobel Prize winner, Mia Hamm, Abby Wambach, Abby Wambach, the woman and the footballer who has the most goals of all time. Robin Roberts, Heather O'Reilly, Sojourner Truth, Beyonce, Audrey Lord, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Katie Sowers, Tina Fey, Jessica Mendoza, and Mother Teresa. Just smashing. To me, that's the kind of sports story that lifts my spirits to the sky and uh, makes me want to live again. Um, speaking of women's events, uh, Women in the World is an awesome website that you should go to. And always great fun. Ethiopian Airlines, uh, this Friday is International Women's Day, or as Doug Benson knows it, National Ladies' Day. Ethiopian Airlines to celebrate International Women's Day with a flight entirely staffed by women. And I wanted to read you this paragraph. Ethiopian Airlines has announced plans to honor International Women's Day by making a flight from Addis Ababa, that's the capital of Ethiopia, to Oslo, Norway, via Stockholm, with an all-women crew. But this is the part that I think is so great. Every role in the flight, pilots, operations, flight dispatch, load control, ramp operation, onboard logistics, safety and security, catering, and air traffic control will be performed by women. It will help show the power of women to the world. Um, in 2015, Ethiopian Airlines operated using an all-female uh, flight crew for the first time in a 70-year history. And then and India did it four years ago, an all-women uh, flight crew from India. But they're going to have everyone involved in this, from the uh, air traffic controllers to the caterers. Be women on this Friday on International Women's Day. Um, as I said, there's a, a site called Women in the World. And there was some sexist nonsense said this week by a, a minister in Estonia about the woman who won the election to be Prime Minister of Estonia this week. In Sunday's parliamentary election in Estonia, Estonia is on the Balkans, right? It's near Russia. It's above Scandinavia or to the side of Scandinavia and is a highly technical country with, um, uh, they're deft in languages and they're, um, uh, the internet is considered a human, a basic human right in Estonia. It's a very small uh, nation, uh, up there in the north. And by the way, there were always Estonians in every Viking crew. In Sunday's parliamentary election in Estonia, the center-right reform party won 29.4% of the vote, setting up its leader, Kaja Kallas, to become the first female prime minister of the Baltic country, so long as she can form a coalition government, which looks likely. She's 41, and her dad was also um, PM. They also have a female president, if you can believe this, named Kirsty Kaljulaid, um, and she's been in office since 2016, but they're one of those countries where it's difficult to ascertain. They have a president and they have a PM, but the president's largely ceremonial. Estonia is a little country with a big digital footprint nestled next to Russia. And this is from fortune.com, which is a totally a left-wing site. 1.3 million residents. Uh, their progressive thinking about the internet economy has made it a leader in e-government. We're just excited to see uh, women take over the world. The UK launches a global fund to help end period poverty by 2015. Women all over the world um, uh, need uh, 
sanitation, toilets, and articles to help them through their menstruation every month. This is just a fact of life, and it's not available to everyone. And this story kind of buoyed me a little. Britain launches a global period poverty fund and task force to help all women and girls access sanitary products by 2050. That seems like a long ways away. The government pledged to give £2 million to organizations working to end period poverty globally and has earmarked a quarter of a million pounds to create a task force of government, departments, charities, and private enterprises to tackle the issue. Menstruation is still taboo in many countries. In Nepal, the centuries-old Hindu practice of shapati, where women are banished from their homes, has led to four deaths since the start of the year. Yeah. If you're enjoying male privilege right now the way I am, it's time for you to shake it up a little, baby. You need to look at yourself and you need to look at what you're doing and you need to look at how you relate to women and you need to make some moves. You can support Planned Parenthood. You can support the women near you. You can support women in general. Take their side when there's arguments. Um, fight for them when terrible things go down. It's really a good idea and it'll make you feel better about your life. Um, a couple of uh, people are swirling in the heavens this week, even though it's Women's History Month. Keith Flint from The Prodigy. Jennifer and I lived in England when The Prodigy was The Prodigy. And uh, they were pretty wildly popular. Of course, they broke it in America. He seemed to be a lovely person. He um, He's swirling in the stars on his own tonight. Uh, I'm going to leave you with that. Um, May every page you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool Papa Bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're Barry Bonds. I wish you nothing but love. I hope to see you down the road and soon. Uh, for Jennifer and I, I wish you uh, nothing but peace and happiness. This is Keith and the Prodigy rocking out the fire starter. <laughs>